Uh, let's jump into our message then today. Here at Meadowbrook Church, we are here helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Wherever you are at in your journey with the Lord, whether you're brand new to this, whether you've been walking with him for a really long time, whether you're maybe even not sure about Jesus and you're just here kind of exploring and checking things out, wherever you're at, we as a church want to help you take those next steps. And so we focus on that primarily in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. We want to take our next steps upward, which is in our relationship with him, our connection with him, our knowledge of him. We want to be focusing on that very intentionally. We want to take our next steps inward as we are letting the Lord change us, transform us, make us more like him as we find healing, as we find freedom, as we are growing in him. And then we want to take our next steps outward as we are living it out, as we are engaging with other people, as we are walking out our faith. We want to take those steps outwardly as well. So we have been in a series for the last number of weeks. We're going to wrap it up today that we've called Jesus and the Sinners. And we've just been looking at different stories in the Gospels where Jesus engages with and connects with sinners, finds people in their sin. And we're wanting to learn what does this teach us about Jesus? We're wanting to learn what does it teach us about our sin and our our relationship with him in our sin? And what does it teach us about other people when we see them in their sin? And how do we engage and encourage other people as we find them in sin as well? So we've been looking at all of these different things. There's five key ideas that have been guided us through this series. First of all, Jesus calls us to follow him and his ways. 1 John 2, 6 says that whoever claims to live in him, in Jesus, must live as Jesus did. If we're going to call ourselves a Christ follower, we're going to follow in the way of Christ. And so what Jesus taught and how he lived is really important for us as Christ followers. And that might sound obvious, but it bears repeating that we want to take that seriously. Jesus said we are to hear his teaching and put it into practice. When we do that, we're like the wise man who built his house on the rock. If we hear his teaching and we ignore it, we're like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And so we're wanting to be wise. Controversial, I know. But that is what we are going for. We are taking it seriously to follow after Jesus here at Meadowbrook. And so that being said, how Jesus lives and how he engages with people is something we want to learn from and something that we want to imitate. Second, Jesus' engagement with sinners sometimes makes some religious people uncomfortable. There were people who felt that Jesus was a little too friendly with the sinners that he engaged with. Not everybody, but there were critics there throughout his ministry. And that didn't seem to bother him that much. They were thinking he was too soft on sin. He wasn't taking a strong enough stand. Jesus wasn't worried about that. He was loving people and and engaging with people where they were. That being said, Jesus still calls sin what it is, and he calls us away from it. There's a word repentance we've talked about a lot in this series. Repentance means to change or to turn away, to to get off the track that you're on. And so Jesus is not shy to call sin, sin. Jesus is not shy to call people away from sin. He is calling us ultimately back to himself and to find his way, to find the pure way. We've talked a lot in the series about how Jesus is both holy and merciful, and he doesn't compromise either one of those things. He is perfectly holy and also perfectly merciful and somehow manages to find the way to hold those things together. And then finally, Jesus meets people exactly where they are. He doesn't want them to stay where they are, but he engages and meets them where they're at and ultimately calls them to follow him. He calls them back to himself. There's a verse we've looked at as well throughout the series, John 1, 14. We have seen his, Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, Jesus was full of both of those things, grace and truth equally. He compromised neither one. He was able to hold those together. We so often can lean to one side or the other. We can be so gracious that we forget about truth, or we can be so truthful that we forget about grace. Jesus managed to find that balance and walk that out. And again, we're wanting to follow his example. So we, uh, in the Walker House, something new to us this year is that uh, Kaylee joined the competitive dance team. She's taken dance classes in the past. Uh, She's really good. I'm not just saying that. She's really, really good. And so they came to us and said, you know, she's good enough to be on the competitive team. And so this is our first year trying this out. So we had our first competition on Friday of this week. Uh, and so Kaylee went up, she was nervous, and she went up, and it was in Chatham, so there's a nice theater in downtown Chatham, and so we were there. Uh, we're new to all of it, there's dance moms everywhere who know exactly what they're doing. Uh, I was not one of those dance moms. And as we are there, Kaylee's up on stage, and I'm really not saying it, just because I'm her dad, she really was the best one up there, by far. <laughs> She really was. Everybody said so. My mom said that. (laughs) Sarah's mom said that. 
but no joke, she was really, really good, the best one there. And so as we were going in, we have a friend uh, named Kara, and Kara, years and years ago, was our kids' pastor when I pastored in Amherstburg, and she and her husband became really good friends to Sarah and I, and then we moved away to pastor elsewhere and, and kind of drifted apart, and they, they just sort of became those friends where you kind of see them once in a while, right? And, and you know, when you see them, it's great. So we hadn't seen uh, this family in quite some time, but Kara's daughter was also in the competition, and so Kara was there on Friday as well. So we hadn't seen her in, in a year or two, I think, probably. And so as we connected, we, you know, we got, the, uh, got Kaylee all set up, and, and we went for lunch. And there's lots of time to kill at these things. There's, just, there's hours and hours and hours of waiting. Uh, and so we were having lunch. We were catching up. And I said to Sarah afterwards, like, oh, what a fun day that turned out to be, because Kara was there. Uh, you know, in all the waiting and all the boring time, it really helped that part. It's amazing to see Kaylee up there, but that's three minutes long. And in the three minutes of joy at that, it's surrounded by hours and hours and hours of boring stuff. And so it was such a good day just hanging out with an old friend. And it was one of those things of like, oh, you didn't miss a beat. You just kind of jumped back into your own dynamic. We laughed a lot. We caught up a lot. And there was just a, a wonderfulness about that part of the day. It was just such a good thing to, to kind of reconnect. And, and even though we hadn't seen each other, in forever, uh, it was nice just to be reminded that that was a good friendship in our lives. And, and we don't see each other that often, but it was good to be refreshed in the, the reminder of just, oh, we have fun and, and there's lots to talk about. That part of the day was just a nice surprise. And so I, I, was, just, I was thinking about that just in light of what we kind of went through this weekend. And I think in any relationship, like any marriage, uh, you've heard it said, you know, you got to work on the marriage and you got to keep the marriage fresh, right? And there's, there's lots you need to invest in the marriage and you can take each other for granted over time if you're not careful and you can lose some of the sparks. So you have to work on that marriage. But that's really true of any friendship or any relationship of any kind, right? You can kind of forget. You can take each other for granted. Uh, Sarah and I have moved around a lot and sometimes one of the aspects of moving around as a pastor is you sort of go like, oh, I didn't realize how important that relationship was until I moved away and then I I kind of lost that friendship just because of the distance. And so you don't always realize it at the time, but it's good to be refreshed in it. It's good to be refreshed in your marriage. It's good to be refreshed in how much you love your kids as a parent. It's good to be refreshed in your friendships or in your church relationships or whatever. And I think it's just as good, and it's where our coming together is so important, that we are also being refreshed in our relationship with the Lord that we are reminding ourselves of who he is, that we are reminding ourselves of how good he is, that we're reminding ourselves of how good the good news really is. Because if you've been around church for a while and you hear the story over and over again and you're, you're you know, immersed in it and it, it, it's happening all the time and you're hearing sermons and you're reading your Bible and you're singing the songs, if we're not careful, it can just become kind of a comfortable background thing in our lives. It can just be something that we believe it, and we really do believe it, and we're trying to live by it, and we're really trying to live by it, but we can lose some of the, the awe and the majesty. And part of where I think it's important that we come together, it's part of why we get together in, in smaller groups and in life groups and, uh, and dig into the Word together, it's where prayer time is important, it's where Bible time is important, is that we can be stirred up again in the wonder and the awe of how good the good news actually is. That it's not just something I believe intellectually, and I, I really do believe it, but it's something that stirs us again to worship. That in Jesus, however we picture Jesus, here's one of those classic old 70s pictures of Jesus, however we picture the, the Son of Man, what he looked like, and, and what that is like in our mind, that the good news is, is that when we were lost, when we were in darkness, when we were in sin, when we were without hope, when we were on our own and stumbling and struggling through life by ourselves because of the paths we had chosen, that even as we wandered away, Jesus came chasing after us. He came from heaven in pursuit of us. He came out of his great love for us. He came and lived among us. He came and sacrificed everything for us. He left the comfort and glory of heaven to live a very uncomfortable, difficult human life. And then he goes to the cross for us and deals with our sin for us and then rises from the dead for us, all of it done to bring us back to himself. 
that even though we were the ones in our sin who went the wrong way, he came after us nonetheless and brought us back. He restored us back into his family. And as we close off this series, I wanted to close off by looking at a story of that type of restoration. So in our story today, we're kind of jumping around uh, the end of Jesus' time on earth, right around the cross, and even into the resurrection uh, afterwards a little bit. So uh, we're going to move through a couple of passages here today. But let's start in Luke 22. We're going to start in verse 54. So Jesus is being arrested. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So now we're going to fast forward through the cross, through the resurrection. We're going to talk about those things on Friday and next Sunday. But turn ahead to John chapter 21. So just turn to the right in your Bibles, through the end of Luke, into John, and into John chapter 21. So at this point, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen from the dead, Jesus has appeared to his disciples, and Jesus is getting ready to return to heaven. So we're in John chapter 21, and we're starting in verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and where, went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one that had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. That's a good ending to a, a gospel right there. That's beautiful. So we're talking Peter today, Apostle Peter. And if you're like me, you love the Apostle Peter because he's so... Uh, relatable in so many ways. Peter often serves as something of a spokesperson for the other disciples. And so in the Gospels, often Peter is the one talking on behalf of the group. So he's something, it seems, of a bit of a leader, even amongst the 12. And Peter I love and have sympathy for and, and just empathize with because he's so eager and yet so often stumbles in his eagerness. And I go, that's me. That's what I sound like. Like, where he's so devoted to the Lord. He loves Jesus. He's passionate. He's ready. Uh, and the Gospels are full of these stories of him just kind of making mistakes and saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. And so he is stumbling along in his faith in a way that I imagine is probably a little bit relatable to all of us. 
Now, what he does in the, the first passage that we read today is something that is a really, really, really big deal when it comes to sin, right? If we're defining sin as just the ways in which we turn away from the Lord, Peter denies Jesus three times. Here's why that is such a big deal. In Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33, Jesus taught, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. That there is something about this that, that sets our eternity in, in motion, right? It decides where we end up. Uh, that to be disowned before the Father when we stand before him in judgment is a very, very big deal because the only way we believe we get into heaven is when Jesus says, hey, Chris is with me. Right? That's how we get in. I don't earn it myself. I don't make it happen myself that Jesus saves me and invites me in. And so this is a big deal, what Peter has done. What Peter has done has opened himself up to being disowned by Jesus when he stands before God on his judgment day. This is a sin that can disqualify him from eternity with God. And so this is a big deal. This is not something that, uh, that is just a light thing that he did because he got stuck in the moment or concerned. I mean, everyone I would think would understand where Peter felt that pressure and felt that concern in the moment. But Peter disowned the Lord. That's a big deal. And in Jesus' teaching, we don't see other sins where Jesus says, if you do this, eternity might be on the line for you other than unforgiveness. That would be the other one that that seems to uh, bring our eternity into play. And so what Peter has done is massive. The the Bible doesn't say, hey, the tax collectors are going to get disowned or the sexually immoral are going to get disowned. But if you disown me before others, you will be disowned. And so this is not a light thing that has happened. This is a big deal. We seem to see in Peter, it's not explicit in the text, but certainly the the passage we read today says he goes outside, he weeps bitterly. There seems to be an acknowledgement. There seems to be a repentance in there. There seems to be uh, something that that is shifting in him. He's aware of the gravity of what he has done. And so as Jesus rises from the dead, this that Peter has done, just it hasn't been dealt with yet. And, and we serve a good God, and Jesus is a good Lord, and so uh, he needs to deal with what happened before he and Peter can move on together. This needs to be acknowledged. This needs to be dealt with. So in our second passage today from John's Gospel, starting in verse 15, they'd finished eating. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And so do you love me more than these? We're not quite sure what that means exactly. Is he saying, do you love me more? than the other people here? Or is he saying, do you love me more than, than anybody else loves me? Or do you love me more than your, your ministry or your family or, or whatever? We don't quite know. Uh, I don't think with any specific clarity what he's getting at. But the heart of it is, do you love me, right? Do you love me? And so, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And so for a man who just days earlier uh, had been so caught up in the events of the world and the fears of this life that he had literally disowned Jesus, like he committed that big, massive sin. And as he stands with Jesus now in this moment, Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Jesus says, feed my lamb. Peter, I still have a call on your life. Even though you did that awful thing, my calling on your life hasn't changed. Peter, you're going to feed my lambs. You're going to be an apostle. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to be a leader. You're going to be a teacher. Jesus is reaffirming the call that was on Peter's life. He wasn't disqualified because of what he had done. You would think perhaps you would be, right? Like that would be of all the things. If you're going to be a leader who teaches people to follow after Jesus no matter what, then one of the marks of a person who does that should be someone who follows after Jesus no matter what. Right? You would think you would want someone who has a perfect track record of I've never disowned Jesus, and that would be the ideal leader. But God has a call on Peter's life, and the gift and call of God are irrevocable. And so even though Peter has sinned, he's had his repentant moment, he has wept bitterly and acknowledged his sin, and Jesus in this passage is restoring him into who God had called Peter to be, in spite of Peter's sin. God is not disqualifying him. God is not caught off guard. God is not worried. God is restoring him into who God has called him to be. There is something a little bit earlier at the Last Supper when Jesus says, someone's going to betray me and you're all going to fall away from me. In Matthew 26, 33, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And again, I'm sure Peter meant it, right? I'm sure that was sincere. I'm sure his passion was real. I'm sure he wasn't stretching the truth. I'm sure that was absolutely sincere in the moment. But there's a warning there that says, hey, let's not get cocky when it comes to sin. Let's not think that will never be me or I could never do that. I've been in ministry a while now. I have become convinced we are all capable of lots of things. And how many times have we seen where, you know, there's a big minister and, you know, he rails against sexual immorality only to get caught having an affair himself or or a pastor will rail against, you know, giving and tithing and money. And then you find out they've got private jets and they're using this money for things. Those are extreme examples. But we see over and over again where people, you know, are, are strong on something and taking a stand against something only to fall into that same thing that they were railing against. And this is Peter like, I will never fall away from you. It's like, you're going to do it tonight, Peter. Tonight you're going to fall away. And so let's not be arrogant. Let's not think that could never happen to me. Let's have a modicum of humility as we approach these things and understand that we are all stumbling along, that we all need his grace, and let's not ever get arrogant or cocky in that. Because Peter was quite confident that this would never happen to him. Uh, and he didn't even finish out the night before he stumbled into the very thing that he was quite confident he would never do in any way. So there is a warning here to be watchful, and there's a warning here to be humble. So Jesus asked him once, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep again. Do what I created you to do. Do what I've called you to do. Live out the gifting and the calling that I have put on your life. And the Bible likes to repeat things. The Bible likes the number three a lot. And so a lot of times we will see things. God likes to repeat things just to make sure the point is is hitting home. And that even in light of Peter's sin, which was significant, uh, Jesus again is saying, my calling for you hasn't changed. Right? You, you did something bad. My calling on your life hasn't changed. You haven't been disqualified. And I think a key to this is that Peter uh, is not running away from the Lord. He's not running away from his calling. He's not running away from his gifting. He's not disqualifying himself. He is not saying, oh, I screwed up. The Lord could never use me. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, I still want you to feed my lambs. And Peter's going like, no, I can't do it. I, I could never do it. You don't know who I am. I hear that from Christians a lot in the, in the idea of you don't know what I've done or, or whatever the case may be. And there may be some time off that we need to take or there may need to be some healing and restoration. For sure, that needs to happen. But it sounds very humble when we say things like, well, God can't use me, or, or I can't go down that road, or my, my time is done, or the door is shut, like it sounds very humble, but what we're actually doing is dishonoring the Lord if he's the one doing the calling. Because if he's the one doing the calling, then it was never about us in the first place, right? It was never about, oh, I bring all this stuff to the table that he needs to use. If, if he's called us to do something, we do it. And if he hasn't, then we don't. But let's not disqualify ourselves. Let's not talk ourselves out of it. And let's let him lead these things. And so Peter could have just kept running away from Jesus, right? I screwed up. I I committed the big unpardonable sin. I'm, I'm on my way. I'm running away. But he doesn't. He sees Jesus alive and he comes back. Peter doesn't run anymore. And Jesus says, Peter, I still want you to feed my lambs. Next verse, 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And, and it's true. Jesus does know all things. Jesus is not asking these questions because Jesus needs the information. Jesus knows very well where Peter's heart is at. Jesus is not requiring the information because he's ignorant of it or he needs it. Jesus needs Peter to know this stuff. He needs Peter to do this. He needs Peter to understand. And so Peter's hurt the third time because it sounds like Jesus is asking them the same question again. Right? Like if Sarah said, Chris, do you love me? And I said, yes, of course I love you. And then she says, do you love me? And I say, yes, I, I absolutely love you. She says, do you love me? And I'm going, am I answering it wrong? I don't understand. Like, yes, of course. 
So Peter's hurt because it seems perhaps like Jesus is not believing him, right? Like it sounds like maybe Jesus is, right? Like we do that with our kids. Like, did you break that thing? Did you? Did you? Like you, you're trying to get the truth out. So Peter is hurt and, and feels like maybe Jesus doesn't believe him. And, you know, I think he could probably leave the hurt aside. Like you did just do the thing, right? <laughs> like, you know, I love you. It's like, right. But in that moment, when, it, when the pressure was on, you did completely fall apart. So it's, it's not, crazy that Jesus would ask the question and ask him to clarify it. But it's not about Jesus needing the information. It's about Peter saying it. And three times Peter says, I don't know him. Like, I I don't know him at all. To save his own skin, I don't. Three times Peter denies him. And so Jesus gives him three times to reaffirm his love and devotion. Jesus is letting him undo what he did a few nights earlier. Three times Peter denies Jesus three times publicly with the guys around, lets him reaffirm, yes, I I love you, Lord. I am devoted to you. I am committed to you. And Jesus says, okay, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to take care of my sheep. You're going to do that. Because it's not just about the repentance. We've talked about repentance a lot in this series. And the Greek word for repentance literally means change. And so when we talk about repent of your sin, when we talk about repent in your life, we're talking about change direction, get off that track that you're on, come back to the Lord, find his way, walk in his way. And so when we talk about repentance, we're talking about a a shift of heart and a shift of, of action. But actually, the good news of the gospel is much more than that. It's not just about God wants to save us from our sin. It's not just about God wants to help us find a better way. It's not just about our sins are forgiven. God wants to restore us to himself. He wants to undo the damage that sin has done. And some of the damage in our lives is we've made bad choices and we're reaping the consequences of those bad choices. Some of the damage in our lives is how others have sinned against us. Either way, Jesus is wanting to restore all of that. And so Peter has, has gone through the damage of his sin. Jesus is restoring him, undoing what he had done. You denied me three times. I'm going to ask you the question and allow you to answer it right in the way that I know is the real you and where your heart is at. You'll be restored as you answer that three times in the affirmative. And I'm going to reaffirm my calling for you that as you have done that thing, which might have kept you out of heaven, Jesus says, Peter, as you have wept, as you have come back to me, you are restored back into your place. You're restored back into the family. I'm not treating you weird or different because of what you did. You're back where you belong by my side. You are restored into your place at the table of God. You're restored again. And that is part of our job to act towards one another. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Not self-righteously, not with judgment, not with screaming, not with looking down. Restore that person gently, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Again, there is no room biblically given for arrogance when it comes to other people's sin. None. There is no room for it whatsoever in how a Christ follower is to act. So if we see someone else in a sin, then it's our job. We want to see them restored. We want to see them turn away from it, repent. We want to see them back and and right in their relationship with God. We want to walk alongside them and we do it gently. And then we're careful because there's no guarantee that we might not fall into the same thing. So it's not that you struggle with that sin and you're worse than me or you're, you're, you know, deficient in some way. It's no, any one of us can fall into anything. And so we leave our arrogance aside. We leave our self-righteousness aside. And in love and compassion for one another, we say, hey, how can I help you? How can I encourage you? How can I support you? How can I help you in the turning and the repentance? How can I help you in your walk with the Lord? How can I participate in your restoration as Jesus calls you back to himself and all the healing and blessing that goes with that? And so it's not just about the turning. It's not just about the repentance. It's not just about the acknowledgement that we did something wrong. That's all crucial, but it doesn't stop there. Jesus is looking to restore us to the table that we once sat at before we turned away in our sin. Jesus has more to say to Peter. This part's not quite as fun 
<laughs> the story doesn't, uh, it's not going to be all just here's wonderful grace and blessing because Peter has a specific call in his life. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. And so our church tradition understands that of the apostles, all of them were martyred for their faith. All of them literally laid down their lives except for John. Uh, John seems to have lived into old age. But all of them would be ultimately killed for their testimony of Jesus Christ. The tradition of St. Peter, uh, when Jesus is talking about someone's going to dress you in clothes, that meant prison clothes. You're going to have execution clothes put on you. And someone's going to take you where you don't want to go. Traditionally, Peter was also crucified as he was coming towards the end of his life. Uh, he said to the executioners, you can't crucify me right side up. You have to crucify me upside down because I do not feel like I should hang in the same way that my Lord hung. That, that was a holy thing. So you can crucify me, you just got to do it differently. And so traditionally, he was crucified upside down. And all of the apostles felt uh, or experienced similar type things. They were hung, they were uh, executed, they were stoned, they were murdered in different ways. They were persecuted all over the place. And that's not like the fun, happy side of what we talk about at church, typically, right? That Jesus said, hey, there's also persecution that goes with this. With all the grace, the mercy, the blessing, the healing, the restoration, there will also be struggles and challenges in the name of Jesus. Sometimes you're going to do exactly what you understand God wants you to do, and people will persecute you for it. And that might be in your family, that might be in your friendship circle, that might be unbelievers, that might come from believers, right? There, there is a challenge to walking the path that you believe Jesus is calling you to walk, and yet Jesus says to him, after he's dropped this bomb on him of, hey, you're, you're not going to have a, an old man death lying in a bed surrounded by your loved ones going peacefully. That is not where your path is going to take you. Then Jesus says, having said that, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Will you pay the price? There is a price to following after Jesus. Salvation is free. It is a free gift. Following him costs us something. Because in following him, we also have to take up a cross. We also have to sacrifice. We also have to take the hard road. And that really is the invitation that Jesus offers to everybody. It's come and follow me. Put your trust in me. Come and walk with me. Come and live my way. It's not just believe the right things about me. Jesus says, follow me. Follow my teaching and follow my ways. Not just about making sure we have our understanding right, as important as that is. We, we put a high importance on that. But we are also following his ways, following his teaching, following his example, and following where he leads us by his Holy Spirit. What does he want us to do and where does he want us to go? The invitation to Peter is come and follow me. Even though it will cost you something, come and follow me. And what's so beautiful about Peter's story in the restoration that God God is working out in his story is that as Peter, who again, just kind of stumbled along, I think very sincerely and good naturedly, often said the wrong thing, often got corrected by Jesus, often just wasn't quite where he needed to be. But man, do I love his heart, right? He just kept coming back. He kept coming back for more. He kept following after Jesus. He kept holding on to him. That part never changed until he has this moment. Where Jesus is arrested, the whole world falls apart, and Peter, in that moment, as he is confronted with, you're a follower of Jesus, knows that if he says, I am a follower of Jesus, he might end up on a cross too that day. And so in that moment, in that struggle, he says, I don't know him. I mean, even if that sin is as serious, who couldn't at least relate to that, right? Like, that's just so understandable, that in the moment, you panic and, and, and do this thing. And then he weeps bitterly because he knows the weight of what he just did. And, and as Jesus in, invites him and restores him and brings him and, and has this moment of, okay, you've denied me and disowned me three times. That's bad. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Answer it right three times. 
And as you answer it right, as you come back to me, as you've acknowledged your sin and returned to me, I'm restoring you to the apostolic calling that I had for you. So go and feed the lambs and take care of the sheep. Go and do what I've called you to do. And then just a little while longer in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the apostles and the disciples with great power. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter becomes a completely different person. He never stumbles again in the same way. Anytime we see Peter speaking in the rest of the Bible, it is confident and authoritative and consistent because the Holy Spirit comes to do that work of change within us. The Holy Spirit comes to make us different people. The Holy Spirit comes to purge the sin out of us. The Holy Spirit comes to make us more holy. The Holy Spirit comes and gives our words and actions power. The Holy Spirit comes and does all of that stuff. And so the same Peter, who with a few servants at the fire, said, I don't know him because he was so scared, a few weeks later is standing up in front of thousands in the streets of Jerusalem and saying, Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he lives. And that is his proclamation loudly and boldly for the rest of his life. This is quite a story from, I'm scared of a a couple of girls around a fire who, you know, I don't want to be on the wrong side of this moment, to standing in front of thousands in the streets and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly, knowing just as much that he could be killed for it, knowing just as much that it could lead to persecution. All of that fear disappears when the power of the Holy Spirit shows up. And so we all have the Holy Spirit. Anyone who, who follows after Jesus, by, by definition, you've received the Holy Spirit. You can't understand Jesus without the Holy Spirit. And yet we're also told by Scripture that we are to seek the continual filling and refilling and refilling of the Holy Spirit. And when we start to feel far from God, it's often we just need another refilling. If we're starting to struggle with a sin, we often just need another refilling. If, if we're feeling hurt or broken, we need to be refilled. We need to seek that. We need to pray for that. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. We need to go to the places in our lives where we feel close to him, where we can feel that stirring and that filling up again. Because Jesus, as he was leaving, said, I'm going to leave and go to heaven. I'm going to leave you, but you won't be left alone. I'm sending you a helper. And the helper's name is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus wouldn't say, I'm going to leave you with a helper when I go, if we didn't need the help. We need his help. We cannot do it without him. And so our constant prayer, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I'm going to come into worship because worship's a place where I feel filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to get into your word because that's where I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to engage with believers that I trust because there I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You probably know just where are the places where you feel close to him, where you feel stirred up, where you feel refreshed, where you feel renewed. Go to those places without apology. Make them a priority in your life. Because we need his help. We can't do it without him. And so we pray constantly, Lord, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Peter is never the same. He has his forgiveness and restoration with Jesus. That's step one. And then he's filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Spirit. That's step two. And then Peter's just a a force for the rest of his life here on earth. And he's not perfect. And we, we see him a little bit wrestling through theology and stuff. We do get a couple of pictures of that. But he never comes close to disowning the Lord again. He never comes close to falling into that again. As we get ready to wrap up the passage, verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. That's John. John is the one who is writing this story. Uh, John, as he's writing the story, calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. So healthy self-confidence in John and in his connection with the Lord. So this was the one who leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, John, he asked, Lord, what about him? Right? So Jesus has just said, Peter, this is how you're going to die. And so Peter says, well, what about him? (laughs) Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor was spread amongst the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? I love that John does this. This is what I'm always trying to do. What did Jesus actually say? Right? How often do you hear me say that? Let's be clear about what the text is really clear about. Let's not read much into it beyond that. We all do that a little bit. I think it's unavoidable. But Jesus is, is he never said John's living forever. And John just wants that clear. Here's what Jesus actually said, so let's be precise about what he actually said. 
And so as, as Peter is walking along, uh, John is there, and I, I just love it because we've talked throughout this series about deflection, right? We all have this tendency to deflect away from ourselves. My sin, what about their sin, right? Like we just, just get the spotlight off of ourselves, and that's what Peter's doing here. So Peter has just been told, you're going to die a martyr's death, and you're not going to want to go there. Like there, there is a painful end to your life on earth here, but it's going to be worth it compared to the glories of heaven. So come and follow me. And as Peter hears that, well, what about John? What kind of horrible death is he going to die, right? Like, why, why, what about him? What's his story going to be? And Jesus won't play the game, right? He just, he won't let him do it. He says, well, if I want him to live forever, what does that matter to you? You follow me in your calling, on your path. You worry about you, Peter. You worry about you. And that's another theme we have talked about throughout this series, uh, that when it comes to our sin, it's so easy to focus on other people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 7, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So that doesn't mean we don't literally judge right and wrong, but the way in which we do it is very important. Because if I see sin in you, the way that I treat you, that's going to get measured back on me. So how do you want the Lord to treat you in your sin? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, that's Jesus calling us hypocrites, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Peter does this deflection in this story as it relates to his death, right? I don't want to talk about my death. What about him? We do this with our sin all the time. My sin, what about their sin? And Jesus says, yeah, your main concern off the bat is not their eye, it's yours. That's your first and primary concern. You deal with yourself first. Now, you are still concerned about their eye. The point of this story is there are two clean eyes at the end of it. But as I work on myself, as I acknowledge my sin, as I wrestle through that, then I learn things, I find the Lord in it, and then I can help you deal with your own stuff. But if all I'm doing is getting mad at other people's eyeballs and never dealing with my own stuff, to the extent I do that, Jesus calls me a full-on hypocrite. He says, you deal with you first, that's your main job, to deal with you. And when it comes to sin, we inevitably fall into this thing, and I don't think anybody would ever say, I believe it this way, like they wouldn't put it into these words, but we inevitably seem to fall into this, this idea that there are, we're all sinners, right, basic theology. We all understand that. Everybody's a sinner, but we inadvertently take on this attitude that says, well, there's good kinds of sinners and there's bad kinds of sinners. And I'm one of the good kinds of sinners and the other people are the bad kinds of sinners. And I don't struggle with that particular thing. That's the really bad stuff. My stuff, it isn't great, but I've learned to live with it. I'm justifying it. I'm wrestling through it. And so we have this attitude that says there's kind of two tiers of sinners. There's the, the really bad stuff, and then there's the good, the good kind. And that's kind of where the Pharisees were at, right? It's like, oh, it's the tax collectors that are the problem. It's the prostitutes that are the problem. And those weren't sins, presumably, that the Pharisees were struggling with. But as we saw when we looked at the Pharisees, the Pharisees had a long list of things going going on that weren't good, that they weren't acknowledging. Because they had that very common attitude of, well, there's good sinners and there's bad sinners, and I'm the good kind, and my stuff is not as bad as the ones who do the bad kind. And to that, Jesus says, look at your own eye. That's your job. Your primary job is to look at your own eye. And as you are getting yourself cleaned up, as you are finding God's grace, as you are leaving your sin, then you will have grace to help someone else clean up their eye as well. But too often we don't bother with that, right? With my one blind eye, I can still see pretty good to all your faults. And what I'm doing isn't that bad. Look at what these people are doing, right? I might do bad stuff, but I'm not, you know, cheating on my wife. I'm not killing anybody, I've had people say that in my office many times over the years as they get confronted in their sin. I haven't killed anybody. I'm like, oh, is that the bar? <laughs> is that the, that's what we're going for? I'm just not a murderer? It's like, no, we're, we're all sinners. There is no division between the good ones and the bad ones, and we are all called to repentance, and we're all called ultimately to restoration, where we get to the place where we want to be, where not only am I leaving my sin, but I'm being healed and set free from the consequences of my sin, and I'm increasingly finding my confidence to be who he's called me to be, which is a son of God sitting at his table. 
and finding my restoration fully in Jesus and what he has done for me, understanding that what I did yesterday doesn't disqualify me from my place in his kingdom, and that as I repent and turn back to him, I will find grace and mercy every single time that I call out to him for that. So as we wrap up the last few verses, 24 and 25, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. So this is John talking. We know that his testimony is true. Again, talking about himself. We know that I always tell the truth. (laughs) Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And again, I just love what a beautiful way to end his story. John's version of the gospel. John's spirit-filled, infallible version of the life of Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. And he says, you know what? If we wrote down everything Jesus did, there just wouldn't be room. That's a bit of hyperbole, I'm sure. Uh, But just a reminder there, too, that what we have in Scripture is everything we need about God. It is the bedrock. It is the, the canon. It is the measuring stick. It is everything we need. It's not all that there is to know about God. There's no book that could contain that in its entirety. The highest heavens can't contain him, Scripture says. So there's no one book that's going to have everything, but it's everything that we need. And we get to spend all eternity learning who he is in his fullness. We get to start that journey now. And then one day we will continue that journey face-to-face and see all of it. Come on, up, worship team, as we get ready to wrap up today. Here at Meadowbrook, we are helping people take their next steps with Jesus upwardly, inwardly, and outwardly. Uh, and I like to give you just a few things to think about as we wrap up our sermon. And today, they're all kind of tied together, upward, inward, outward. Just to take some time this week, we're heading into Good Friday. Good Friday is a, a somber day, right? It's a solemn day. We're remembering the cross. We're remembering the, pi- the price that was paid for us. And as that happens, we also are getting ready for Easter Sunday. And in Easter Sunday, we remember the victory and we remember the triumph of our God. But as we are working through Holy Week, I'll encourage you this week, read the, the Holy Week story in your Bible time. Take some time in the Gospels, read about Palm Sunday, read about what his week was like, read about the Last Supper, read about these different pieces of the story. As we come into Friday, read about the the arrest and the trial, the cross, Uh, read about the in-between time, read about the resurrection as we get ready for next weekend. But just take some time as you do that, upward, inward, outward, reflecting on your own sin and your own repentance and your own restoration. Right? Are you confident in the fact that you have been forgiven? Because uh, that is the truth of what God's word says, that if you have turned to Jesus, you are forgiven, that uh, your sins are wiped out. It's like you're as white as snow, is the picture that scripture uses. And so if you're struggling with that, and I think it's very normal to struggle with that, if there's doubts that come along, doubts are very normal. But what do we need to do then as a next step? Like, how do we need to draw near to the Lord? How do we need to be refilled with the Spirit again so that we can find that peace with Him? Where it's not about I'm focusing primarily on what I did, but where we're focusing primarily on what He did and what He did for us and how that has forgiven our sins and brought us back to him. And then how can we help others in that journey? Where is someone else struggling where we can reach out? Where are you struggling maybe where you need to ask for help or or you need to, to take that hand? I'm not good at this. I'm bad at asking for help when I'm struggling. I'm trying to get better at it. Where do we need to ask? Where do we need to say, hey, I need... I need someone to come alongside me here and just chat with me, pray with me, whatever. Where can we help? Just as Jesus took time to restore Peter, we're not Jesus, but where can we help someone else draw close to the Lord to experience that same grace, to experience that same forgiveness? Maybe it's just an encouraging text or an email. Maybe it's just that simple. Maybe it's having coffee with somebody. Maybe it's just that simple. Maybe it's it's getting together and, and talking something through. Maybe it's just that simple. But where can we help one another along in that journey of repentance and restoration? And so give those things some thought this week. And, and I pray always, Holy Spirit, keep speaking long after I'm done talking. Just keep speaking and keep showing and keep revealing where you want us to go. As we wrap up our series today, Uh, today's message was called The Restorer of Sinners. And I wanted to end on that note of restoration, that Jesus has come to restore us. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
He came to call us back to himself. And I wanted to end on this note of restoration, and partly because it happens around the Easter time as well, which is just kind of nice timing how that worked out. Last week, we talked about what gets in the way. We talked about the rich young man and and how money in itself uh, is not sinful. And we have lots of things in our lives that in themselves are not sinful, and yet any of which can get in the way of our walk with Jesus and how that pulls us away from him. And so how do we engage with that? We took a week to talk about the Pharisees. When Jesus reaches the limit, the angriest I see Jesus get at sin in the Gospels was not the tax collectors. It was not the the sympathizers with the Romans. It was not the sexually immoral. The angriest I see him get is with the regular church attenders who knew their Bible really, really well. And so there is a a strong warning there for all of us who are regular church attenders, who know our Bible really, really well, that it is very easy for us to, in our devotion to the Word, in our devotion to trying to do what's right, we can actually miss Jesus in there and what he is actually looking for. And so we took some time to unpack that. We took a week to talk about when Jesus flips the tables, and we see some uh, anger and frustration there as well, when Jesus is not happy about what's going on in his own house and learning from him. Uh, What does that look like? When might we act that way? How do we live that out? Uh, We took some time for that piece. We talked about the adulterous woman in a message called Caught in the Act and just caught in the fullness of her sexual sin and yet encountering the grace and mercy and protection and love of Jesus and yet also the encouragement that she leave her life of sin and not remain in what she is doing, the grace and the truth of God coming together so beautifully in that story. We took a week to talk about the humility as the apostles argued about which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, our human pride, our human arrogance, our desire to climb the ladder, to gain more, to to seek position and spotlight and, and money and increase. And actually Jesus, as he comes to earth, goes the exact opposite direction. And he actually says, you're not to pursue power. You're not to pursue prestige. You're not to to, to pursue that climbing of the ladder in the way that the rest of the world does. The kingdom actually moves downward as we serve one another. And even those who are going to lead in the kingdom are going to be feet washers who, as we see, might end up nailed upside down to a cross. And so we're not seeking our own glory. We're not seeking our own, our own benefit. We are here to love God and obey God. We are here to serve others. We're not going to let the sin of pride and arrogance drive the ship as we're making decisions in life. We talked about the Samaritan woman, that Jesus spent some time with her, water from the well, uh, stuck in her own sin and her misunderstanding of who God is and who Jesus and the Messiah were going to be. Uh, Jesus meets her with such grace and compassion. And, and God, again, as he's doing in all of these stories, he's ultimately drawing people to himself. Uh, He's not drawing people to a religion, per se. He's not drawing people to a specific, you know, confession of faith, per se. He's drawing people to himself because he is the source of life. And he talks to her about where the water in the well uh, is temporary. I can give you the water that will quench your thirst for eternal life totally forgiven. Uh, We took some time to talk about uh, lots of things as we went through the series in terms of um, different sinners coming from different places. This was the sinful woman who anointed his feet uh, with the alabaster box and the oil and and just the the sin of her life that the Pharisees got snarky about and yet Jesus welcomes her in because again, she's trying to find him. She is looking for him and he is drawing all people to himself. We talked about Zacchaeus, the wee little man. The wee little man was he up in the tree and Zacchaeus, the tax collector who had betrayed his God, betrayed his people, uh, just betrayed his his fellow Jewish people to partner with the enemy, uh, lost and cut off and rejected by his own people. Jesus saw him in the tree. Zacchaeus, I need to have dinner at your house tonight. And through that conversation, Zacchaeus turns to the Lord and finds him and is saved. And then we started off the whole thing a number of weeks ago, the kickoff series, Jesus and the Sinners, just talking about this was the God who came to earth and hung out with the people that you wouldn't think he might hang out with, right? The people who were outcasts, the people who were sinners, the people who were traitors. And those were the ones where Jesus said, I need to be where they're at. And I'm not afraid to associate with them. I'm not afraid to hang out with them. I'm not afraid to share a meal with them. I'm going to hang out with them. And again, ultimately draw them and point them to himself. And so that is a series wrap on Jesus and the sinners. And so we are going to close off with worship and prayer as we get ready to head out into Passion Week. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we get ready to close off.